Sarah. Hi, Allison. Um, I'm saying hi, but actually you're not in front of me. You're in the safety of your own home. <laughs> once once again, out of commission. Yeah, once again, mm. you know, this is beginning to be a thing. A cynic might think that I really don't like my job, which uh. is absolutely not the case, as you know. <laughs> I just, I slipped in the rain a couple of weeks ago uh, in the rain. early morning and broke my wrist. Oh, so man. I've now got a plaster on. Yeah. So not able to, well, I mean, you can use your voice, but it's hard to type a script and do research and all that. So you're off until the end of the year. Um, but Jess Phelan, who our listeners know by now, is stepping in. Uh, hi, Hello. Jess. Hi, Alison. So sorry to hear that you've had another accident. <laughs> yeah, well, not to worry, not to worry. I, um, it's nice that you're, that you're in the hot seat anyway. So <laughs> I'll leave you to, to do your thing, have fun, and I will hopefully be back in the new year. Yeah, yeah. So um, Jess, we're launching straight into questions of immigration. Yeah. So as you know, France is discussing a new immigration bill. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about this before, this idea of putting it to a referendum. But the um, the bill itself is sort of have as a fundamental tension of, you know, lots of jobs in France that aren't being filled. Some say they should be filled by immigrants um, and in the service industry, construction, those mm-hmm. kinds of jobs. And then, of course, on the right, they just want to limit the number of people coming to France. Mm, yeah, that's right. And then within the bill, there are also all kinds of other provisions that haven't got as many headlines. Mm. Um, Like there's this one amendment tucked in there that would actually have made it easier for foreigners who own a second home in France to spend time here. Ah, okay. So we're not talking about asylum seekers or Mm. illegal immigration anymore. But I guess this uh, second home thing is a thing. I imagine there are quite a few foreigners who have second homes here. I mean, Mm -hmm. not even just the mega rich with Mm. their luxury Mm -hmm. Parisian Mm -hmm. apartments. Yeah, definitely. France actually has the highest percentage of second homes in Europe, and most are owned by French people. But among foreigners, Brits make up the biggest group Ah. of second homeowners in France. In 2016, so before Brexit, around 86,000 Brits had second homes in France. Ah, Brexit. Yeah, Brexit. All right. Well, that must have changed things. Yes, Ah. definitely. So until that came into effect, British visitors could come and go in the EU as they pleased. Mm. But with Brexit, they can only spend 90 out of every 180 days in France. So three months here, three months away, so on. Yeah, like a tourist visa, like regular tourists. Yeah, exactly. Like any other non-EU tourist. And while that's always been the case for Americans, Australians, etc., it is a change for Brits. So a lot of people are sore about it, especially Ah. if they bought a house in France before Brexit and they didn't vote for it. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that would rub you the wrong Mm. way. Um, You know, they, of course, might want to come more than three months at a time without having to apply for a visa and special Mm -hmm. paperwork. Yeah. And when the French Senate looked at the immigration bill, they proposed some amendments to it that would have loosened the rules for second homeowners. And they ended up adopting one that was specifically for Brits. It would have exempted them from visa requirements altogether. Ah. But it didn't pass. Ah. A parliamentary committee threw it out. They said that Brits shouldn't get special treatment and neither should people who can just afford Mm. to buy a second home here. (laughs) Fair enough, I suppose. (laughs) Right. The principle of egalité and all that. Mm. Um, But this whole thing did get me wondering what kind of choices Brits 
are facing after Brexit, whether they just want to visit France or, or stay here longer, potentially. I asked Emma Pearson, the host of the Talking France podcast and the editor of The Local France, which is a website for English speakers living in France. And full disclosure, she's also a former colleague of mine because I used to work for The Local's Italian edition when I lived in ah, Italy. Right, right. So I, I know this is a big issue for Brits all around Europe. And in France, Emma told me that a lot of people are adapting to the new rules. If you just want to come for holidays, three months at a time in France is probably enough. But that's not the case for everyone. The people that affect the most really, I think, are retirees um, who want to spend longer than uh, the 90 days at a time. The option is there to get the, the short stay visitor visa. The requirements aren't particularly onerous. It's just the annoyance, really, the sort of the extra paperwork, things that people didn't have to do before. I don't want to give the impression that the, the only British people who moved to France or, or spend time in France are retirees. We're, we're both British, neither of us are retired. Well, actually, you and me are much more typical of Brits in France than the sort of the stereotype, which is, you know, the the wealthy retiree, often living in rural areas, swilling gin, expat types, whatever. I think that's the stereotype that people have in their heads when they talk about Brits in France. But actually, um, that's not really the case. I say Brits are far more likely to be of working age, working and living in the cities, uh, because the cities are where the employment is, obviously. Um, it's not super easy to get sort of pre-Brexit data, because obviously we didn't have residency cards then. But um, there's some 2016 data from INSEE, the, the French National Statistics Body, and that showed that of the Brits in France, uh, 61% were working and 60% were living in the big cities. So it is actually much more typical to do that. And we've kind of seen mm. that trend continue since Brexit. If you look at sort of new visas being granted for people who are moving now, mm. it's pretty much the same again. You know, two thirds of people are, are working, a um, mm. certain group are studying, and then after that, you get retirees. Um, the sort of the wealth thing, I mean, that's a bit harder to, to actually measure. I think most of the people who are working are not particularly wealthy because France isn't a particularly high wage economy. So they're more likely to be, again, like you and me, you know, we're doing all right. We can buy wine, but we're not uh, not living a luxurious lifestyle. Um, and even of the retirees, actually, certainly of the people that sort of, you know, I, that I know that I get in contact with through the local friends I have, whatever. A lot of people have actually retired to France in part um, for financial reasons. You get quite a lot of sort of former public sector workers, you know, nurses, police officers who move to France to retire uh, because property is cheaper, because the cost of living is cheaper once you're in the country, not so much in Paris, but in rural areas of France and because the healthcare is good. So mm. I don't think really any of those stereotypes mm. hold true. I mean, clearly there are some wealthy retired gin swillers, but uh, <laughs> they're not the majority at all. I mean, we've talked a little bit about some of the changes, the sort of practical changes that came with Brexit in terms of paperwork and, and visas and that kind of thing. Do you feel like there's been any kind of change more broadly in relations, perhaps, or the way that the French people see British people? Do you see any of that translating into other areas? Honestly, I find the only people who have any interest in Brexit are the Brits. And honestly, that was the same all the way through. Mm. Um, like I arrived in uh, in Paris in 2019. So, you know, the whole Brexit thing was still ongoing. And even at that point, if you were talk unless you were talking to a French person who was like really very interested in politics, you sort of mention Brexit and they'd be like, oh, right. Yeah, Brexit. D did that happen? Did you go already? <laughs> and like This was such a big thing for Brits. But like, I, I honestly think French people don't care about it. Mm. They certainly don't. I I've never 
had any sort of hostility about it. But that's the other thing that I always find quite interesting, which is that in the UK, French bashing absolutely is a thing. And like often, you know, it's quite sort of jokey but you know mm. people will happily say you know oh I hate the French mm. in a way that they wouldn't say about a lot of other countries mm. and that just doesn't translate in France you know you don't see like front pages of tabloids going you know oh we hate the English or whatever mm. it just doesn't have a, yeah. a constituency and if anything most French people seem to feel quite positive towards the the Brits they think our accents are cute sometimes they think our accents are sexy which I still find very weird but uh, but they like the accent I'll take quite, it uh, I'll take it yeah um, but they're quite interested in the UK as well you know like a lot of people will have seen films from the UK or whatever you know yeah. and actually when I talk to American friends here in mm. France they say they're the ones who are much more likely to get a not a hostile reaction from mm. than the French, but the French are more likely to sort of be negative about the US, mm. about its culture, about its politics or whatever. Whereas that just doesn't seem to happen with the UK. I was interested to ask as well whether you've kind of heard from people saying that they're considering taking citizenship who maybe wouldn't have done before Brexit. Is that an issue that's come up? Um, yes, yeah, I think so. I mean, way back in whenever it was, 2016, when they uh, when they had the vote, there were quite a big group of people there who would have been eligible for citizenship for years but had just never bothered because it didn't really have any practical applications. So I think we certainly saw a sort of spike in applications after that. Since then, I think, yeah, people are now maybe more interested in doing it when they can. Um, I have plans. March next year, I will be eligible for it. So I'm starting to sort of look at my dossier. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certainly... For some people, yes, citizenship is just a, a practicality. But for a lot of people, and for me especially, actually, I think it, it is more of an emotional thing as well. That You know, when you feel that a country is, is your home, you might want to get involved in the democratic process so you can vote. Um, but also it's just a sense of a sense of belonging. The whole process for citizenship is like, obviously, there's a load of paperwork, as there is everywhere. But you are sort of required to learn a bit more about France and to sign up to the values of the republic and you know sort of put it put it out there that you value france and mm. um, so it does have an emotional element as well but i mean it's certainly it's quite a long and complicated process so i don't mm. think it's something that people do on a whim mm. um but i think it has maybe made people sort of think a bit more deeply about their relationship with a country that they might have lived in a long time and think about you know where do I see myself in the future? Is this my home? Am I just staying here for a bit? Will I die here? It's, mm-hmm. uh, so I think maybe it's the it's the emotional as well as the practical side. Yeah, it's sort of almost that kind of transition from being a expat in inverted commas. I actually wanted to ask you a little bit about the word expat. What are your feelings about the word? Or this the sort of categorization of one type of foreigner, another type of foreigner in France. Yes, uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, we did a, a survey a couple of years ago of our readers, and we literally said, like, do you call yourself an expat or an immigrant, and why? And it was the most divisive survey we've ever done. Personally, I I would describe myself as an immigrant rather than an expat. Um, I think if you look at the sort of the root of the word, an expat is usually being someone who is just in a country temporarily. So I think immigrant is probably more sort of accurate verb, you know, if you feel that France is uh, is going to be where you live. Um, But I mean, yeah, it is a a racially loaded term, I think. You very rarely hear non-white people described as expats. Mm, mm. Um, And I mean, it's interesting with this immigration bill. People are sort of saying, but but will will these new rules, will they affect expats? 
and you're a bit like expat doesn't exist in a technical term you know if you're if you're a foreigner in france you're an immigrant in term, in legal terms you know how you describe yourself is a different thing but mm. all of these rules on you no know, on immigration will affect all foreigners living in france mm. for me yeah i i think immigrant is feels like a better fit but equally you know there are people who describe themselves as expats uh, because they don't see their future here that you know mm. they might just be here for working or here for a, a short time um or they might just feel that it kind of reflects them and their experiences better so i don't think there's a right and wrong way about it so that was emma pearson host of the talking france podcast which comes out every week you can look for talking france wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now Jess, after all this, you know, are are you going to become French? You've been here for a while. Yeah, well, I'm actually pretty lucky in that I don't have to go through that whole French citizenship ah. process that Emma was describing there. My granddad was Irish. Oh, there you go. So I was able to get Irish citizenship as well as my British citizenship. Mm. And that allows me to live and work in France and the rest of the EU. And I, I know a lot of Brits have gone down a similar route. A lot more of us are dual nationals now. So Jess, it's the holiday time of year in France. That means it's foie gras season. Uh, this is the fattened duck or goose liver. Mm. Controversial. We're not getting into that part of it. But um, d- do you eat foie gras? I have to say I'm not a big fan ah. of it. It just tastes like oily butter to me. <laughs> oh my God, I think you're, I think you're insulting quite a few uh, foie gras aficionados. Um, although I don't eat it personally as a vegetarian, but... I've always been intrigued by the name of a well-known brand of tin foie gras, Comtesse du Barry, which is the name of Louis XV's last official mistress. Mm. Um, she died on 8th of December, 1793, so 230 years ago this week, guillotined during the revolution. Mm. Turns out she has nothing to do with the foie gras company. Okay, but <laughs> first of all, I must ask, what is an official mistress to the king? <laughs> it's a good question. I guess that was a thing for kings. You know, he had a wife. She was getting older. He was aging too. He had mistresses. The most famous was the Marquise de Pompadour. You've probably heard of her. Mm. She was a close friend of his, an advisor. And after she died, he got depressed. Comtesse du Barry cheered him up. Hmm. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, You know, from her beginnings, her origins, you would never have imagined that she was spending time with the aristocracy. She was born Jeanne Bécu in 1743. She was the illegitimate daughter of a seamstress. She was educated in a convent in Paris, and at age 15, she left and struck out on her own, working various jobs, you know, and then made extra money as a courtesan. I mean, I guess we'd call it prostitution today, but at the time, you know, there weren't so many options for women to make extra money. Anyway, she was very pretty. She attracted the attention of Jean-Baptiste Dubarry, who found women for aristocrats. Right. Okay. So that's another way of saying he was a kind of high-end pimp, essentially. Yep, yep. Yep. It would seem. So he set her up as a courtesan, introduced her to members of the court, including the Duke of Richelieu, Louis XV's best friend. And 25-year-old Jeanne was introduced to the king in 1768. The Marquise de Pompadour had died a few years earlier. The king's advisors were looking to get him out of his depression. Jeanne's beauty and her experience as a courtesan 
brought renewed uh, life <laughs> to the king, <laughs> <laughs> who himself was not that young at the time. No, no, he was 58 years old at the time. And so mm-hmm. Jeanne became his third official mistress. This shocked many in the court, not least of which because she was unmarried. So the king said, let's marry her off. She married Guillaume du Barry, Jean-Baptiste's brother, who was a count. Right. So you had to at least pretend to be respectable. And she became the Comtesse du Barry. Yeah. Yeah. She got a title out of it. The king showered her with presents, a good amount of money, access to castles. All this caused a lot of jealousy at the court in Versailles. Some worried about her influence on the king. Mm. When he died six years later in 1774, Jeanne left the court, set up in her castle at Louvesien, not far from Versailles. Hmm. So she retired, essentially. Pretty much. And she was mostly left alone. But the revolution caught up with her. She was arrested and tried within 48 hours, sentenced for execution, guillotined on the 8th of December, 1793. Oof. And where does foie gras come into all of this? <laughs> Why does this company have her name? Yeah, so that story starts in 1908. Joseph and Gabrielle Dubarry set off to make what they said was the best foie gras in the world. Mm. They were in Gascony, uh, the foie gras capital of France. So she knew charcuterie. He was a tinsmith. And actually together they invented the first ever tinned foie gras. When they officially founded their brand in 1926, they chose a name that was a nod to them, their last name, Dubarry, and uh, the king's mistress. Hmm, I see. So there was no actual relation. No, no. I do find the evolution of the company kind of interesting. So their daughter, Yvette, took over in 1935, and she came up with the idea of mail-order foie gras, uh-huh. which was actually a hit during the Second World War. So their advertisements mm. were aimed at mothers who were told, you know, set aside a tin of foie gras <laughs> in case your soldier son comes home unexpectedly and wow. you need to have a party. Wow. And it seemed to have worked. In the post-war, there was rationing and that kind of thing. The company started producing tin meals, and then they came up with a way to make more affordable, spreadable foie with scraps of duck liver. And the company today sells in supermarkets and kind of positions itself as affordable luxury. Hmm. And so would the real Comtesse du Barry have eaten foie gras? Well, so foie gras goes back a long time. There's records of it, I mean, even back to the Egyptians. And and it being eaten as a high-end food in France, the records start to appear in the 16th century. And it would seem that Louis XV served it at his banquets. Right. So Jeanne and the rest of the court would have eaten it. It would seem. So Jess, did you know that French museums, and in particular the Musée de l'Homme, the Mankind Museum in Paris, has the largest collection of human skulls in the world? Ooh, <laughs> I did not. And that is not something you should expect to see on display. Yeah, human remains in a museum. Um, it's problematic because mm-hmm. they're not just objects, right? They're people. Mm. Corinne Toca de Villiers knows this well. She's been working on tracking down what happened to her grandfather's grandmother, one of 33 Kalina, or indigenous people from French Guiana, who were brought to France in 1892 and put on display at the Jardin d'Acclimatation. 
Oh, right. Okay. These human zoos. Yep. Yep. Very trendy for the French public uh, through the 1930s. And while these Kalina people came to France voluntarily, they were paid to come. They really didn't expect to be put on display. Mm. So that's a whole other story, the human zoos. But eight of them died in Paris, and six of their skeletons are now in the Musée de l'Homme, the Museum of Mankind. And it took a while for Toca de Villiers to track them down. We started with research that began 30 years ago, and with those clues we went on a museum hunt by elimination. First we went to the Quai Branly Museum of Indigenous Art, and after looking and not finding anything, we thought to go to the Museum of Mankind. And on January 31st, 2023, we discovered a list of files concerning the eight deaths, with how they died. We now know that they were buried at the Levallois Perret Cemetery, and five years later were exhumed to be brought to the Museum of Mankind. So we have a lot of the documentation about them, which has allowed us to retrace their entire history from the day they took the boat to their deaths and the return of the others who did not die. She founded an association to identify this group of Kalina, as well as 14 other people who had been brought to France 10 years earlier. And now that they have been identified, what happens next? Well, the idea is to try to get them out of the museum. And this is the subject of a new piece of legislation that's being prepared to be able to return these remains. Hmm. And France has already returned some artworks that it acquired under questionable circumstances, Mm -hmm. like some pieces that were looted from Benin. Yeah, yeah. France has sort of taken the lead in returning art, but it has lagged behind other countries in returning human remains. I remember that there have been some returns already. There was some there was a case of some Maori heads mm-hmm. being returned to New Zealand, I yeah, think. Yeah, there have been two quite high profile returns. So these twenty mummified Maori heads returned to New Zealand in twenty twelve. And then in two thousand two, South Africa got back the body of Sarchie Bartman. She had been put on display as the Hottentot Venus right. and her body got returned. But these returns needed specific legislation that would make exception to laws that protect French ownerships of objects in its public institutions. Returning human remains then is time-consuming, full of red tape, lots of paperwork. And the idea of this new law is that it would just streamline these requests. MP Christophe Marion, who presented the bill to the National Assembly, explained the need for these returns. This bill responds to a real expectation expressed by several foreign states that have asked for the return of human remains, some of them for many years. This is an act of reconciliation, a memorial act that also recognizes a scientific or colonial history that was marked by forms of violence, both symbolic and real. The legislation has been pushed by specific demands from countries who want their relics back. For example, Australia has formally requested about 50 indigenous Australian human remains that are in French museums, and the Australian ambassador has been following the debates in Parliament. Hmm. And and what are these remains? You said that there were a lot of skulls in this Paris museum? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, bones. We're talking about a lot of bones, lots of skulls, some soft tissues (laughs) preserved Mm. in jars in formaldehyde. So the Musée de l'Homme, the Museum of Mankind in Paris, has the most, there are 24,000 items 
The majority of the remains of people from France and Europe, but there are also remains of indigenous people from all over the colonized world. Also, you know, war spoils after the mm. colonial wars. I mean, it's very complicated. Some were collected in archaeological digs. Um, also, 19th century anthropologists who were working on the idea of race science, which was sort of the uh. colonial idea, right, of, of ranking races. Um, historian Clara Boyer-Rossol has spent years trying to get research access to human remains in French public institutions. It's really in this context, with the emergence of colonial conquests. It's what we call science and colonization. So there's very little historical documentation about what these remains are, as Wanda Zinger, the director of anthropological biological collections at the Musée de l'Homme, explains. Some were acquired during the European conquest, with naturalists on boats who were interested in skulls. Others were acquired in a colonial historical context. We have very little information about these acquisitions. We do not know if some of the bones could have been stolen, and we probably have some in the collections. Then there are others that were acquired through exchanges with islanders for goods. They had figured out that skulls and human remains interested the Europeans, and they used them as a form of money and exchanged them in this way. Only about a quarter of the remains are actually identified as individuals or coming from specific communities, and the identification process, which is key to any return, is time and resource intensive. Corinne Toca de Villiers has done the work on the remains of her people's ancestors. The idea now is to bring them back to French Guiana. We have a very, very close relationship with mourning. There will be a shamanic ceremony to appease the souls. There will be a gathering of the people of Guyana, whatever their ethnic origin. And there will be songs. It will really be a party. We'll call it a mourning period. There will be a big party in the name of the dead who are coming back to their homeland. But it all depends on how they're returned. Will they be returned to a museum? We are against that. So we are in talks with the ministry. If we are told they are back and you can mourn, that would be wonderful and very spiritual. So what does the legislation say about what to do with the remains once they're returned? Yeah, so there's specific wording that the remains are to be returned for funerals or memorials, not to be put on display mm. elsewhere. Historian Clara Boyer-Rossol explains. It seems a bit problematic to demand conditions for the restitutions. Though the wording is to avoid any violation of human dignity, especially if the remains end up being sold, which absolutely needs to be prevented. So that's why the conditions on returning them have been a bit specific. But at the same time, it should not be restrictive. Rather, it is to leave open the possibilities for communities and countries of origin to use their ancestors' remains as they wish. And above all, to be able to carry out appropriate ancestral rights. Uh, and what's really interesting about the Kalina remains is that they are people from what is now part of France. Mm -hmm. French Guiana is a French overseas department. Yeah, right? yeah. And you've touched on one of the tricky issues in this law, right? The legislation would allow only states to ask mm. for remains back. And, you know, is France going to ask for French remains back? Mm. So it gets a little complicated. Senator Catherine Morin de Sailly, who's been working on this issue for over 20 years and was at the origin of the legislation, says this is an important aspect. Tout ce qui est 
État étranger sera réglé. Pour ce qui concerne les territoires ultramarins, Everything having to do with foreign countries will be resolved by the law, she says. As for overseas territories, the law requires the government to provide a solution within a year. And then to make things even more complicated, remains sometimes come from states that no longer exist or from communities that are present over several countries. For example, the Kalina live between the French Guiana and Suriname. Corinne Toca de Villiers sees the need for returns to be done on a case-by-case basis. We cannot generalize a request. For Madagascar, it cannot be like for Guyana or for the Canucks in New Caledonia. The government needs to take into account all these little details in relation to culture, tradition, spirituality, everything that makes it so they cannot just say, Suriname is a foreign country, so it's up to Suriname to make the request. We, as descendants, will do what we must do for these human remains to return to French territories because it's a French request. They came and died on French territory and they have been here for 131 years. So this new legislation on returning human remains, has it been passed? Well, the bill's been passed by both houses of parliament. Now it needs to be reconciled between the two before becoming law, but that should happen. Um, it will specifically address pending requests. So there's one from Australia for its indigenous remains, one from Argentina for the remains of a tribal leader that will be returned to his descendants. And then a request from Madagascar. They want back the skull of the Sakalava King Toera. Um, that's in the Musée de l'Homme, the Museum of Mankind. Mm-hmm. And interesting, the law will also formalize the return of 24 skulls of Algerian resistance fighters that France returned in 2020. And that's it for Spotlight on France. This episode was mixed by Stéphane Desfossés. We're a production of Radio France International. If you want to write to us, we're at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. And if you like the show, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. And that's it for this year. We'll be back in January. In the meantime, you can find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France, and on rfienglish.com. Bye, Jess. Bye, Sarah. Just walk through that door